Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. As always, this is your host, Adam White, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Tal Fort Gang. Tal, have I mentioned The Federalist? The Federalist. Yeah, we worked together for about a year. Has this come up? I forget. Is this The Federalist or a Federalist who is an (laughs) anti-Federalist? This is the only Federalist, The Federalist, Hamilton, Madison, and occasionally John Jay. I joke because Tal's endured a year of me talking about The Federalist. But it's worth dwelling upon. And among the various parts of The Federalist that are worth quoting, one of my favorite is this, Federalist 78, to avoid an arbitrary discretion in the courts, it is indispensable that they should be bound down by strict rules and precedents, which serve to define and point out their duty in every particular case that comes before them. Sounds pretty simple, don't you think, Tal? Absolutely. Well, you would think it turns out life is a little more complicated than that. And to discuss that, I'm so glad to be joined today by my friend, Will Bode. Will is a professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. He's one of the most interesting writers and thinkers on the scene right now on matters of constitutionalism and the court. And he's written two recent articles, one that'll soon be published, one that was published last year, I think touch on fascinating topics. The first one for the Supreme Court review, the one that will come out later this year, is on precedent and discretion. And the other one published last year in the Stanford Law Review is on my favorite constitutional topic of all, constitutional liquidation. So Will, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Let's start with precedent and discretion. You've posted this draft paper on SSRN, and I encourage everybody to look it up. Its title is Precedent and Discretion. Now, of course, Will, you're still working on the paper. There's always the standard disclaimer on SSRN. I can't quote or attribute anything without permission. Can, can I have your permission for the next uh, 30 yeah. minutes? <laughs> yes, yeah, let's talk about it. And I should I should say it's pretty much in page proofs at this point. So anything I screwed up, it's just going to have to come out and I'll have to you know, confess error later. This paper, when you wrote it, you were focusing on some recent opinions out of the Supreme Court, especially by Justice Thomas and by Justice Alito. But just in the last few weeks, we're taping this at the beginning of May 2020. And just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court issued opinions in a case called Ramos versus Louisiana, had to do with an important precedent on criminal juries and unanimity. They overturned an old precedent, but along the way had an interesting argument among the justices about precedent itself, not just the plurality opinion by Justice Gorsuch, but also interesting separate opinions by Justice Sotomayor, Justice Thomas, Justice Kavanaugh, and a pretty fierce dissent by Justice Alito. Not just, again, not just on the merits of the death penalty issue, but on precedent itself. I'm curious, did that case come out in time for you to write about it in this article? Nope, not at all. And I should say, part of the what I was inspired by was it seemed obvious the court was facing over and over again this question of whether to overturn precedent and what their criteria for doing it were. And my main plea in the article is to try to be a little more transparent and principled and sort of bound by rules and thinking about that. And I was annoyed that a lot of the justices weren't trying hard enough to do that. So I'm overjoyed to have the court be trying to embarrass me before the piece even comes out. This is sort of the best refutation I can hope for. Well, you should give yourself credit. There was you know, a note of optimism in the, in the essay. In the article, you said what made last term, so a year ago, somewhat hopeful, that's nice, was that oral arguments revealed that some of the justices finally seemed to recognize the need for a trans-substantive, content-independent account of stare decisis. And as you say a little bit earlier in the piece, the real problem with the Supreme Court's decisions to overrule precedent are not how much, but when. 
Can you just describe a little bit this broad question of precedent that the court finds itself dealing with? And and why is it that the justices seem to be finally coming to this discussion of precedent itself? Yeah, I mean, so the dynamic I'm I'm concerned about is sort of every time the court faces one of its decisions that now seems wrong, you know, some people want to overturn it and some people want to criticize overturning it. And the dialogue always takes the same form. People who want to overturn it say, well, this one is really wrong. Surely you wouldn't expect us to ignore the Constitution when a, you know, just because a precedent stands in the way. And people who are on the other side always say, well, here goes the court again, just plowing through all the precedents it doesn't like just because now it has the votes to overrule them. But the thing is, who's on which side of that debate and who has which talking point changes from case to case, making it seem like there's no sort of real consistent theory about which precedents get overruled and which ones are supposed to, are supposed to have heightened status. So that's sort of what I, was, what I was concerned about. The good news is some of the justices are now trying to give us an account. You know, some of the justices are trying to say, all right, here's my theory for when we should, when we should overrule precedent. I mean, I think everybody would agree the first step is the precedent has to be wrong. You don't overturn a precedent that's right. You don't even get to the question if the precedent is right. But then, is that enough? The fact that the precedent is wrong? Or do we need more? And if we need more, what kind of more do we need? And so now, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito last term, Justice Kavanaugh, especially in Ramos, are starting to, to give us kind of their theories for when, what the something more is and, and what it might look like. It's interesting, the last two appointees to the Supreme Court, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, before they joined the court, they were co-authors on a book. Gorsuch, I think, described it, as you quote, as a, as a doorstop, an 800-page book called The Law of Judicial Precedent, which is this fascinating treatise really organized by the late Justice Scalia's sometimes co-author Brian Garner, but with just a, a fascinating list of contributors. I moved from the microphone as I reached for the book. You have in this book, Judge Carlos Bea, Kavanaugh, Kaczynski, Bill Pryor, Diane Wood, Jeff Sutton, and Gorsuch, as I mentioned, and others. At the same time, other scholars are putting out fascinating books. Our colleague, Randy Kozel, has a recent book out from Cambridge University Press called Settled Versus Right, Theory of Precedent, and on and on. It's a fascinating and fertile time in thinking about these issues. I mean, I don't think I'm being unfair in saying a lot of this is driven by the controversy, the never-ending controversy surrounding a couple of precedents in particular, right? When Ramos was decided and the justices were arguing about precedent, reporters asked me, and, and, and everybody was debating this on Twitter and everywhere else, what does this mean for Roe versus Wade, right? There's been this longstanding sort of overhang of debate about precedent, which seems sort of a proxy for cases like Roe versus Wade. That's not the only one, of course, but I remember, Will, when you and I were in law school in the judicial nomination fights of that era, 15 years ago, our own inspector announcing the, the, the concept of a super precedent. And you had these sort of metaphysical debates in Senate Judiciary Committee hearings about precedent and, and super precedents and so on. And it all seemed a proxy war for a couple of precedents in particular. I don't want to dwell on that here, but I, I just can't help myself but, but point that out. Yeah, no, let's start there. I mean, so I think there's a way in which all discussion and thought of precedent is just inevitably corrupted by the gravitational force of Roe versus Wade on both sides. Anybody who thinks they might someday want to argue for Roe to be overruled, you know, can't have too strong of a theory of precedent. Anybody who thinks they might someday want it to be preserved, can't have too weak of a theory of precedent. And that's especially exacerbated by the Supreme Court's decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the court itself kind of backed away from just defending Roe on the grounds that it was right, and instead saying, well, you know, even if it wasn't right, here it is, it's precedent, we're stuck with it. Yeah, that's just a, a huge force. I don't think it's everything. I mean, I think, you know, right. a lot of these cases, the justices are capable of, of thinking of multiple things at the same time. So I think it does sort of 
it casts this huge force over everything. And some people, that's all they care about. But for the justice, I think it's just one of the many icebergs you know they have to think about as they're trying to chart a path. Well, let's think about the the cases that you write about here. The first one you discuss is the case of of Gamble, which was a case about the dual sovereignty exception to the Constitution's protection against double jeopardy. Justice Thomas, in his opinion, in that case, he sketches out a theory of stare decisis of precedent, which centers around the concept of demonstrable error. Yes. So the core insight he has, which is borrowed from a brilliant law professor, Caleb Nelson, who himself is a former Justice Thomas clerk, is that precedent should be overturned anytime it's clearly wrong. You might follow the precedent if it's unclear, if it's sort of in the zone of ambiguity, but if it's clearly wrong, you should overturn it. It's sort of a Chevron model for precedent, although I know that Chevron is itself fighting words in these parts. No, not, uh, not necessarily in this podcast, but elsewhere. <laughs> in, the bro- in the broader, let's say which side of the fight you're on. Yeah, but, right. Right. And that that's a way that precedent really does matter sort of over a huge range of cases, you know, Many decisions kind of could go either way, or the judge hasn't really thought about them before, and so you can sort of presume that the previous decision was right. But once you're convinced it's wrong, once you can demonstrate it's wrong, then you have to overturn it. So just as Thomas's approach was sort of raised a lot of alarm bells in the the sort of academic circles I travel in, because it seemed like it was so anti-precedent, it seemed like just as Thomas was saying, close to, you know, anytime I'm convinced a decision is wrong, I'm going to overrule it. I argue in the essay that the real problem is he's not anti-precedent enough. Or that, that part of the problem is that what should we do in the areas where we're not sure whether our precedent is wrong or not? And there, Justice Thomas sort of leaves it open. He says, like, if a precedent's not clearly wrong, it's maybe wrong. I might overrule it. I might not overrule it. That might depend on whether the parties have argued that it should be overruled. It might not. It's sort of a zone of, of discretion where the judge can choose to follow the precedent or can choose to ignore the precedent. And that's the thing that really worries me. Yeah, as, as you said, he's... He begins with something like Caleb Nelson's theory of demonstrably erroneous precedents. And the article, by the way, in case anybody wants to look it up from 2001, is titled Stare Decisis and Demonstrably Erroneous Precedents. But as you said, Justice Thomas says, when things aren't necessarily demonstrably or maybe unambiguously erroneous, it gets more complicated. And you quote in the piece, he says, when traditional tools of legal interpretation show that the earlier decision adopted a textually permissible interpretation of the law, which is to say, could be right, could be wrong. It wasn't unreasonable. It was not necessarily a commanded, you know, the one and only possible interpretation, but, you know, a permissible one. Then courts, quote, may but need not adhere to the incorrect decision as precedent. And that's what you focus on, right? It's that that discretion then that Justice Thomas and this approach leaves open leaves the judges in the position of making decisions based on factors that might themselves seem to be arbitrary. Right. So just to take the Chevron analogy for one more second, right? Imagine if, if Chevron said, when the agency is you know, acting unambiguously contrary to the statute, of course, we'll overrule it. When the agency has a reasonable interpretation within the zone of ambiguity, we might choose to follow the agency or we might not. That would be a very strange doctrine, and everybody would have a lot of reason to be troubled by it. Right. You'd say, well, when are we going to listen to the agency? Well, we're not sure. By contrast, you, know, you started with Alexander Hamilton, and I'm glad. The, sort of, the Hamiltonian vision was, whatever the rule of precedent is, it could be, don't follow it very often, it could be follow it a lot. But whatever it is, its point is to restrain a judicial discretion. Its point is to take the sort of bigger range of things judges might do and narrow it down 
So we all know what to expect and we're not subject to the sort of arbitrary will of the judge. I mean, the more times I've read Federal 78 and I've read it and taught it so many times now, the more I've come to think that it's much more subtle and difficult than we usually let on. And this is one of those areas, right, where Hamilton says, again, you know, the court should be bound down by strict rules and precedents. Just in that half of a sentence, there's two interesting wrinkles, right? One is bound down by rules and precedents, which they might not always point in the same direction. Second, they should be bound down by strict rules and precedents. Well, what if the rules and precedents available aren't so strict? And actually, then the third point, just in that half sentence, is he says the judges should be bound down by these things. But of course, those things don't bind judges so much as judges choose to bind themselves by these things. And so even in one of the most sort of straightforward discussions of precedent, there's these really challenging sort of wrinkles that I think the current moment really sort of reminds us, you know, are, are difficult to, 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 to grapple with. I wonder what Hamilton would make of the present moment. I don't know if Hamilton would have been a textualist. I think he would have been based on Federal 78, but a, a textualist of a kind. And we'll get back to that actually in the liquidation part of the conversation. But if Hamilton were a textualist in the modern sense, how would he reconcile being bound by precedent versus being bound by the rules of positive law? It's, it's a challenging question. No, I agree. And I do think the more pure Caleb Nelson theory comes closer to being able to do it, comes closer to being able to say, well, you should be bound by precedence, but if the precedent is wrong and there's a rule that's contrary to the precedent, then you should be bound by the rule. So the rules have sort of higher status, the laws, the, the written, you know, whatever the principles are. But in the zones of ambiguity where we can't say that, that you're contrary to the rule, that the precedents give them even more, even more texture. That I think makes a lot of sense. I think what What's just happened now is we come to see precedent, as you said, as sort of more like a judicial choice. We talk about the judges, you know, crafting their precedents. We talk about them sort of choosing a line of precedent. We talk about precedent as if it were agency rulemaking by the Supreme Court, an agency that's been put in charge of everything. And that really sort of pushes us towards a model of the court as the legislature for the entire country. That's not a model that any of the founders could have swallowed. And until we sort of get away from that, it's hard to get back to where we should be. We'll get back to the big picture on that in a second, but I do want to pause at least just to, to bring up Justice Alito's opinion. Now, this is in another case. This is in the Gundy case, a case involving the non-delegation doctrine and whether the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, whether it had retroactive effect or whether the Attorney General's power to give a retroactive effect violated the non-delegation doctrine. The court ends up affirming the statute against the non-delegation doctrine. The case made a lot of waves as it was coming up, because a lot of people who wanted to see a reinvigoration of the non-delegation doctrine thought this would be the moment. It wasn't. Justice Gorsuch writes his, his dissent, which attracts a lot of attention. The Chief Justice joins it, which attracts a lot of attention. But a sort of a subtle point along the way, which you shine the spotlight on, is that in Justice Alito's concurring opinion, he offers his own sort of account of the, the decision to overrule precedent. And he talks about halfway originalism. What's that? Yeah, so Justice Lido's statement is very short, so let me quote slash paraphrase just, just a couple of things he says. He says, if a majority of the court were willing to reconsider the approach we've taken for the past 84 years, that's bring back the non-delegation doctrine, I would support that effort. But because the majority is not willing to do that, it would be freakish to single out the provision at issue here for special treatment. So he's saying, I would be a whole hog originalist. I would go all the way. I would resurrect the non-delegation doctrine if we had votes to do that. But if we're not going to go all the way, then I don't want to go half the way. In fact, I don't even want to go one step. 
So he's talking about you know, whether to be part of an originalist, one step towards originalism if you can't go all the way. Right. And that step being that to, you know, to overturn a precedent on originalist grounds, but then leave behind a body of law that is really no more originalist than what was left behind. Or maybe one step more. I mean, yeah. so, and I think just in practical terms, we see this you know, in Roe versus Wade and lots of precedents we're talking about. You know, nobody thinks that when the court sort of overturns a precedent, a major precedent, that it happens all in a day. It happens case by case and step by step. The court first, you know, finds an exception, finds another exception, and then five cases in, it says, ah, it's now come time to reconsider it. That's how we got from Plessy to Brown. That's how we get sort of lots of these revolutions. Justice Alito is suggesting he's not willing to take the first step, even though he'd be willing to take the last step. This really highlights one of the real problems with precedent, and you focus on this too in your article, the fact that Of course, we want the individual justices to each have a coherent theory of precedent, just as we want them to have a coherent theory of everything they're dealing with. But of course, the justices won't necessarily share a single theory. And at the end of the day, they're a collective body that votes and makes decisions collaboratively. And so for a judge like Justice Alito, like any of them, they find themselves having to decide how to operate in a world of second bests. Yes, exactly. When When the court will not make the decision that the justice wants them to make, then where do you fall back to? What's the second best option? So it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of second bests in a system. Exactly. I should say, while I've been criticizing the approach that these justices take, like I do think they're really to be applauded for trying to tackle these problems, which are some of the really hard problems and how you think about precedent and constitutional law that normally law professors worry about and judges often ignore. And I think they're right to be trying to tackle them. I don't totally agree with, with where they've gotten, but I think Justice Alito is, is admirable for even trying to express and think about this problem. But it comes up all over the place. You know, Suppose you think that we delegate too much power to the executives, then does that mean that we should have a legislative veto, which would let us get back some of the power? You, know, you might think on first principles, legislative veto is unconstitutional. But heck, in a world where we're already delegating too much, can we at least have the legislative veto to get some of it back? Or suppose you think that you know, sovereign immunity doctrine isn't totally justified under the text of the Constitution, but we've taken away too much power from the states under the Commerce Clause. Then should we have sovereign immunity to get power back that we should have gotten there? And then as you start multiplying it out, it's really hard to think about how, how all the variables should work together. After walking through those two examples in the article, you finish with the broader themes. We've already started to touch on this concern that precedent changes from being a constraint on judges to almost an enabler. Yes. Could you explain that a little bit? We've already touched on it, but a little bit more would be good. Yeah. So here's the big problem is if your doctrine of precedent is kind of fuzzy, so it lets you, you know, it's based on judicial discretion, judicial policymaking, you know, kind of vague standards, that can then corrupt whatever your underlying legal theory is. So your justice like Justice Thomas, who's a pretty strict rule-bound originalist who will tell you over and over again that his policy views don't matter at all. He's just supposed to apply the Constitution. But then suddenly his theory of precedent is that he may but need not apply the Constitution. He can choose precedent or he can choose the Constitution. Now suddenly all that stuff that his theory of interpretation was supposed to keep out comes flowing back in. So precedent is sort of the the loophole in law. And again, thinking back to the days when you and I were in law school, if you asked any law student, especially one who's focusing on Scalia and Thomas, what's the easiest way to distinguish Justice Scalia's approach from Justice Thomas's approach? It would be something along the lines of Justice Scalia believes in stare decisis more than Justice Thomas, right? Justice Scalia, from the very beginning, from his writings in in the originals of The Lesser Evil and elsewhere, he always held out sort of precedent as a greater limit on his textualism than Thomas did. That's not the only difference, and I don't want to overstate it, 
But I think it was probably the, the most salient difference between the two. For a lot of conservatives identifying that distinction, at least the ones I palled around with, thought that Justice Thomas's approach was much more sort of legitimate and much less corrupted by politics and by individual value judgments than Justice Scalia's was. I think all that's right. And I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. I do think, though, that, you know, and this is part of the, the point I keep trying to stress, it's not just a question of how much. It's not just a question of who believes in precedent more than the other. It's a question of when do you believe in precedent? And do you have a test for precedent that's something other than when you want to? I've been thinking about this issue myself a little bit, especially since Ramos, and I'll probably end up writing on it myself, although in a much more casual format than your actual scholarship. And I've been going back to the Warren Court years and the justices of that era, because in many ways, I think it's sort of a similar moment. That court, it changed a lot of precedents. It departed from precedent. It made a lot of new precedents at a very politically controversial moment. And so I've been going back to think about how those justices thought about it. My favorite example, there's a book Justice Arthur Goldberg published. It was his Rosenthal lectures at at Northwestern, and the book's titled Equal Justice, the Warren Era of the Supreme Court. In his book, he has a chapter on stare decisis, and he says, the impact of stare decisis on our constitutional safeguards, therefore, results in a ratchet-like effect, namely that the court can make decisions that expand liberty, and they lock in as precedents, and that it's more legitimate to undo stare decisis when it expands liberty. He says, this concept of stare decisis both justifies the overruling involved in the expansion of human liberties during the Warren years and counsels against the future overruling of the Warren court libertarian decisions. So it's a pretty, I'd say, you know, self-justifying approach to stare decisis. And I think it would be a mistake for the justices to describe it in those terms. I have another example, but do you well, have what it, It's actually really interesting. This came up in Ramos, it's one of the disputes between Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor who concurred. So one of Justice Gorsuch's reasons for ignoring the Warren Court precedent that let you convict, let states convict people with nine unanimous juries was that the methodology the court used was functionalist, I think, by contrast to formalism and originalism. So, you know, we really shouldn't defer to this bad functionalist reasoning. And Justice Sotomayor goes out of her way to say, well, that's not a good reason. We shouldn't be giving precedents higher or lower status based on whether they apply the right methodology. But this is an interesting question. And one very plausible way for, say, an originalist to think about precedent, a wrinkle you could have for Justice Thomas would be to say, if the prior precedent at least tried to be originalist, like it looked at the text of the Constitution and the right materials, then it gets a sort of presumption of correctness. But if it didn't even try, you just look at it and you're like, they're not even trying to do the right thing, then it gets no difference. And that would tend to lock in originalist precedents over time while letting us overturn the Warren Court. I think that's very plausible. And and that's a good point. We probably should have explored a little bit more, right? The idea that if your theory of precedent is that it's a way for judges to benefit from the accumulated knowledge of previous judges in a case where the answer from the the written law is not self-evident, then yes, you defer to the judges who in the past grappled themselves with what's the meaning of the law. But if that's not what judges were doing in the same way that you intend to do it now, there's no wisdom to be found in those precedents. Right. So I think a big question is, is yeah, to what extent is precedent about wisdom? To what extent is precedent about saying, I don't have all the answers or I could be wrong and I want to benefit from the accumulated wisdom of others, in which case wise precedents count more than dumb precedents? Or to what extent is precedent about compromise? To what extent is precedent about recognizing that we have fiercely different views about constitutional interpretation and we can't be having these fights all the time. We've got to settle stuff and move on. In which case, you know, 
the dumb precedents maybe should get a lot of presidential weight because we can't afford to keep reopening them. What about the value of uh, precedent as a means to stability and the predictability of law and the ability for people to live their lives without fear of the law being jerked around? Yeah, no, that, I mean, that too, that can be served to some extent by either. But part of the problem and part of what sort of brings up this whole paradox is nobody wants complete stability. Nobody wants a world where the court is powerless to overturn Plessy versus Ferguson and decide Brown versus Board of Education. You know, people disagree about which precedents they want, you know, whether it's it's the overruling of Roe versus Wade or the decision of Obergefell that they, you know, want or fear, but nobody wants a world where the justices are powerless. And so then we need to figure out what kinds of stability are good and what kinds are bad. Not just in Hamilton, but in Burke and Tocqueville and others, you see you find so many great writings for precedent and just the English common law style of argument from precedent for precisely that reason, right? Small changes in the law. But the challenge, I suppose, for us is that, and this is what Scalia wrote about, right, in his own, in his book, A Matter of Interpretation, is that you can't just take everything from common law and map it on to the positive law of American written constitutionalism. Right. No, I mean, the fact that there's a text out there and that it's a really important text is something that sort of inevitably hangs over all these debates. I think it's part of what makes a position like Justice Thomas's have so much intuitive pull, is ultimately he can say, look, what's the law, the Constitution or the stuff to just say about the Constitution? And the fact that the Constitution is, you know, the supreme document written in the name of the people makes it hard to say the judges should be more powerful. Right. They swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, not an oath to uphold previous judges' decisions. And the court from time to time over the years probably shot itself in the foot when it would say things coming very, very close to the Constitution is what we say it is, which of course isn't true. There's maybe some truth to it in some sense, but ultimately we are talking about a constitution that we can all go to the archives and look up for ourselves. Right. Well, you can see, I mean, you can see why the court wants the rest of us to think that, why they want us to think once the Supreme Court has ruled, that's basically the equivalent of the constitution and we can't go against it. But they don't think that, right? They don't treat their own prior decisions as if they were the same as the constitution. They're much more willing to overturn their own decisions than the constitution. And if they don't think it, then why should we think it? On that point, one of the most genuinely funny things I've written on this subject was an interview that Judge Lawrence Silverman gave to Ben Wittes, oh, 15 years ago in The Atlantic, where Silverman just blasted the then Rehnquist court for failing to really take seriously its own precedents and to just sidestep precedents, really giving Silverman's opinion, you know, this view of just a court not being bound by itself not binding itself down, which gets back to that earlier point. But on that point you just raised about the court, how it sees itself and how it sees the public seeing itself, seeing the court, you know, maybe the most interesting justice to think about is the chief justice. And I quoted Arthur Goldberg, but around that same era, Anthony Lewis, the famous Supreme Court writer for the New York Times, he did an interview with Chief Justice Earl Warren in 1969, sort of thinking about the court's work. And it was published in the New York Times and in a later collection called The Supreme Court Under Earl Warren. And Warren is really cagey about stare decisis. Lewis asks him about the work of the court in overturning precedents. And Warren just basically doesn't have an answer. I won't really paraphrase it here. He just sort of does what a lot of judges do. He offers up sort of the platitudes of different considerations and then just says, you know, we've always held the view that in constitutional cases, stare decisis is not absolute. Constitutional questions are always open for reexamination. And I believe that too. I sort of chuckle when I read that now, because again, there's the question about which of the Warren court or 
Warren Ishcourt. Decisions might now be open for re-examination. Warren sort of opened the door to it himself in that interview, but never really gave a coherent theory of precedent, which is interesting because it seems to me a chief justice is the member of the court who probably is or ought to be most attuned to how the public sees the collective work of the court, right? The chief justice's name is on the door. And you know where I'm going with this, I suspect. You clerked for Chief Justice Roberts, right? I did. And I should yeah. say, I'm already, I think I'm going to resist this premise. Yeah. I'm not. I'm well, not please, even, let, me, let me finish yeah. the question, but then please but resist ahead. away. Please do resist the premise of my view of the chief justices. But even separate from that, in your writings and all these other debates on stare decisis, Chief Justice Roberts has been a little under the radar. I might be wrong about that. It seems to me he is. I'm not asking you to sort of be the Roberts whisperer and explain what your former boss is thinking. It's always unfair to ask a clerk that. But if you have any sense just from the years you've now spent studying the court, do you have any sense of where Chief Justice Roberts, how he might navigate these kinds of issues? Okay. So first, yeah, let me put the premise just for a second. Right, right, right. I don't think it's the Chief Justice's job to worry about the appearance of the court. I think it's the Chief Justice's job to run the court. So that means, you know, assigning opinions and, and all that stuff. And of course, the better run the court is, hopefully the more people will see the court is better run. But I think that's, that's, that's the job. You know, sometimes the court is a bad court, and it's not the Chief Justice's job to make us think it's better than it is. Unless it's a great court, that's fine too. But I don't think that there's a, that kind of PR aspect of the court to the Chief Justice's job. I have no idea if that's what he thinks or not, but I don't, I don't think it necessarily, necessarily follows. Before you get to the next answer, I didn't mean to suggest that it's sort of his official job. It just seems to me that of all the justices, the one who would be most naturally sort of attuned to the public's perception or at least most aware of or sensitive to the public's perception is the one whose name is on the door. It could be, I, but I also on the door, it says, you know, equal justice under law. And I guess I think if you think of the, the Kennedy court we were familiar with for a long time, I think the person who most cared about the sort of public's view of the Supreme Court was Justice Kennedy because he felt like it was really about him. I don't know if that was good for him. I don't know if it was good for America. And I think the chief justices in that period tended to worry more about just trying to get the cases right. And that's mm-hmm. enough to keep them busy for a long time. Now, this is a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> so <laughs> we could do it another time. Right, right. So I'll just say in general, the current chief is not as given to these kind of like general pronouncements of theory as some of the other justices are. That's true for precedent and for lots of other doctrines. He tends to just take a much more case by case approach. You know, some might say he's an umpire calling balls and strikes. So. This is, tends to be an area where, where I don't think we're going to hear the same kinds of opinions from him as, as we've seen from some of, the other, some of the other justices. It does look like you know, he's somebody who is willing to overturn precedent but reluctant. Mm-hmm. You see this mode appear in, in a range of cases from the, the lead up to Citizens United where he keeps trying not to overturn the court's previous campaign finance cases and then ultimately decides he has to to the recent confrontation with Chevron where or I guess it was with Auer versus Robbins, the recent confrontation with Auer versus Robbins in Kaiser versus Wilkie, where he said, you know, we don't have to overturn it here. He clearly views it as sort of something he'd rather not do, but would do if he had to. So do you think you see that theme, that there's a cost to overturning precedent, but it's not, a, it's not an infinite cost? Now, Richard Ray captured this in that article, the doctrine of one last chance. The court sort of nibbling at issues and putting litigants and, and, and government and all others sort of on notice but just Chief Justice Roberts, and this is one, of the, one aspect of his work on precedent that's attracted him, I think, some criticism, although I'd, I wouldn't be one of the critics, is that he sort of brings the court to nibble at issues. We saw this on the Voting Rights Act. We saw it in campaign finance. We saw it in public sector unions, 
where you get the court sort of nibbling at issues initially, sometimes getting a unanimous decision or a broad, broad majority. But then on the second or third iteration, the court, after it sort of nibbled away at a precedent, overturning it. Critics, some would say either the court shouldn't waste its time nibbling, or they'd say from the other direction, the court should admit up front what it's doing. It's not really nibbling, it's just undermining a precedent, distinguishing a precedent, but really sort of beginning the work of overturning it. And in some ways, Chief Justice Roberts has facilitated the court in that respect in the way he's marshaled majorities. Again, I, I actually think that's probably the right way to go about overturning precedent. But he, he has no shortage of critics on this who think that he's, he's maybe more radical on overturning precedent than he lets on. I mean, I think in this, it also depends on compared to what. So it's easy to say, just to take my favorite, least favorite example of Citizens United, you know, there's a whole range of narrower arguments that wouldn't require the court to overturn a bunch of precedent in campaign finance. And the dissent goes on and on about how the court should have adopted one of these three narrower arguments that would have meant it didn't have to overturn the precedent. Then, as the majority, or maybe it's the Chief Justice's concurrence points out, the dissent doesn't even believe any of these arguments. You know, the dissent dissents. <laughs> and so it's a little hard to complain, like, oh, you shouldn't have, you should have gone about it differently when somebody doesn't even believe in the whole project. And I guess I have the same view about, you know, somebody who thinks the Voting Rights Act should be upheld sort of doesn't have standing to complain that it should have been overruled faster. Well, no, that was more, I think that was in some ways more the, the criticism of those who would want it overruled faster, but both. You know, the point we touched on a moment earlier about precedent as a way to sort of help resolve over time on unclear text, that you know, dovetails a lot with the other article of yours I wanted to touch on. And frankly, the one I, I thought we'd touch on for a longer time, but we've just spent so much time exploring the issue of precedent. It's the paper you wrote for the Stanford Law Review on constitutional liquidation. I'm so glad you wrote this article, one, because it's, it's fascinating and, and a great read. Second, and you and I have been talking about this for a long time. Constitutional liquidation and its discussion in Madison's Federalist 37 is, I think, the most interesting subject in all the Federalist and perhaps all of constitutional law. This discussion of the nature of human reasoning, the limits of human reasoning and written law, and the work of the task of working out legal meaning over time through the actual experience of governance. Madison tucks away in this fascinating paper that's sort of the hinge point of the Federalist, as Harvey Mansfield points out in in a piece he wrote recently on Federalist 37. I always joke with my students, well, I always teach Federalist 37, actually, in administrative law when we get to Chevron, when we start introducing (laughs) the legal interpretation. I have them read Federalist 78. I also have them read Federalist 37. And I always joke that nobody reads Federalist 37 because it's sort of the flyover country of the Federalist, right? Between Federalist 10 and 51 and, and everywhere else. I'm from Iowa, so I'm allowed to make that joke. But it's, it's the flyover country of the Federalist, but it really shouldn't. I think it's maybe the most challenging of all the Federalist papers. And so you explored it and unpacked it, not just that essay, but Madison's broader thought on constitutional liquidation as exemplified in his other writings, in his grappling with issues like the Bank of the United States in this essay. So why don't we just start with the simplest question? What is constitutional liquidation? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. So Madison is talking about the same problem as, as Hamilton, but I think he has a much more realistic, at least a much more sort of human way of thinking about it, which is all law starts out with ambiguity and vagueness, just as the nature of human imperfection. We can't possibly have laws that are perfectly clear. So it's just an inevitability that as we start applying and working out the laws, we try to work towards clarity he becomes more optimistic. He thinks we can work towards clarity, that a sequence of decisions 
And these don't have to be decisions by courts. They can be decisions by, by presidents, by legislatures, by states. A sequence of decisions with reasoned deliberation can ultimately, over time, sort of settle the meaning of a, of a contested constitutional provision. We used to be unsure whether states could secede or not. After a long sequence of deliberations and battles, we now they can, and so on. The exact line, I'll just quote it here, is, all new laws, though penned with the greatest technical skill and passed on the fullest and most mature deliberation, are considered as more or less obscure and equivocal until their meaning be liquidated and ascertained by a series of particular discussions and adjudications. And again, reading it really closely, I think, is, is interesting. He doesn't say some laws, some new laws are vague and some others. He says all new laws are going to have some vagueness in them, some more than others, right? But all of them will until it's worked out through what he calls particular discussions and adjudications. And as you just pointed out, it's not just a series of court decisions, right? It's, it's more than that. So, so what is it? Yeah. So, and this, this is central to it. So I think everybody in the government takes an oath to the Constitution and they have to think about the Constitution when they decide what laws to pass, what laws to veto, what they can do, what they can't do. And in Madison's view, all of that counts. All of that is the same as courts, sort of trying to fill your constitutional obligation, trying to figure out what the Constitution means, and you know, trying to engage in reasoned discussion to make progress on that. And so, so when Congress repeatedly passes the statute after debating about its constitutionality, that counts for something. The president repeatedly vetoes or issues signing statements about some you know, provision of law. That counts for something. And court decisions count for something too. And all of those sort of get added together to establish our constitutional practice. Constitutional liquidation, or it's sort of its analogy to the statutory context, it is one of the reasons why I remain, we joked earlier about Chevron and, and Chevron being fighting words in this podcast. I'll talk and speak for himself. For me, I have mixed feelings on Chevron. I'm, I suppose, anti-anti-Chevron, sort of on a liquidation basis, right? That in some ways, Chevron is, it reflects the need to liquidate and ascertain some statutory meetings over time the actual practice of governance. Well, yeah, although, so again, compared to what? So right. the regime, you know, as, as another friend or colleague of ours, Aditya Bamzai, has written, the sort of the pre-pre-Chevron regime, the 19th century Chevron regime, was liquidation. The right. idea was, what have the agencies done over a long period of time? And if they've, you know, if it's ambiguous and they've had good reasons for this interpretation over a long period of time, it becomes correct. The modern Chevron rule, especially with cases like Brand X, is what does the agency want right now? Right. Even if that's contrary to what most agencies have done for a long time, and even if its reasons are no better and maybe worse than the agency's reasons used to be. Now, ironically, that same transformation has happened to precedent. So precedent used to work like liquidation. You used to ask, are there a bunch of decisions on this topic with plausible reasoning where the judges seem to have kind of settled on this course? If so, we'll defer to it. That's precedent. The modern doctrine, stare decisis, let the single decision stand, is what is the most recent Supreme Court decision on this topic, even if it is 5-4, even if the dissent has better arguments than the majority, and even if the majority threw out a bunch of precedent to get there? I mean, that's the trick the Warren Court used. Right. And you go back to you know, that earlier era, Tocqueville and his account of American law and American judging makes this clear. That I say a law that's passed by Congress or a legislature, it's, it's not necessarily struck down by a single judicial decision, but after enough sort of hammer strikes against that statute, then the statute might fail. Or similarly, Lincoln in his sort of famous criticism of, of Dred Scott in his first inaugural, right? He, he talks about the nature of precedent, the need to respect individual decisions, but leave the door open for those decisions to be overturned lest we be, be governed basically by judges. 
how does all of this fit with originalism? What's the relationship between liquidation and originalism? It sounds like in some ways it could either fit with it or it could be a real challenge to versions of originalism. It's like hand and glove. It's like hand and glove. Okay. So the, I mean, so one of the key premises of all of this is that it's an area, again, where the Constitution is obscure and equivocal, mm-hmm. is ambiguous, either, either in general as applied to the specific case. Yeah, but, so, Matt, no, but Madison says all new laws, right? So All laws have that more or less. Right. So every provision of, of the Constitution has some ambiguity right. and some room for liquidation. But some have it more and some have it less. I mean, and, six, six years for a senator's term is pretty unequivocal, right? Sure, we could get but, into a debate yeah. over leap years, maybe. But, but even it may be pretty clear that growing marijuana in your backyard, completely unconnected to anything else in the world, is pretty unequivocally not part of interstate commerce or, or whatever. There could be plenty of things that are easy cases. I agree um, to disagree. <laughs> Just teasing, teasing. <laughs> Have another podcast. That's a different podcast. One of the things Madison repeatedly says is that precedent or liquidation can expound the Constitution, but it cannot alter it. Mm-hmm. So the hard line is when the Constitution clearly speaks to something, then there's no room to liquidate it to the contrary. But within that framework, and it's a framework, right? It's not a, it's not a completed blueprint that resolves everything. Within that framework, liquidation operates to fill in the gaps. It sounds a lot like demonstrably erroneous precedents in that sense. Indeed, actually. And in the Caleb Nelson piece we referred to, he makes some of the first kind of major references to liquidation and how it relates to precedent. But I think, in a way, this whole liquidation framework is, is a better way to attack this precedent problem. Now, to what extent is this just departmentalism, right? The idea that nothing is settled by an individual decision and that all the branches are under their own sort of both obligation and, and freedom to rethink those issues within their orbit. So it's, departmentalism is a piece of it. Departmentalism is the premise, in a way that each department can make their own constitutional decisions. But then liquidation tells us you know, what to do with those decisions. Yeah. And a lot of people who like departmentalism, I think, tend to not like any kind of precedent or settlement at all. You know, part of the appeal of departmentalism is the, is the constantly open frontiers, the possibility that a president with a bold constitutional vision can come in and, and you know, remake the country in, in that light. Liquidation is a way of taming departmentalism and making it more law-like, and frankly, more like the way it actually works, what the Office of the Council and other sort of government lawyers actually do all the time. The challenge in this, you know, I said at the beginning, or I said earlier, about Federalist 78, you know, judges aren't bound down by precedent so much as they bind themselves. Liquidation is sort of a theory of self-restraint by the branches, that the branches will deem things liquidated and restrain themselves from just continuing the sort of never-ending process of challenging these things. I mean, there's always, I suppose, maybe room in the theory or not, for unliquidation, but in general, the theory of liquidation presumes that once these things have been settled, there's going to be some self-restraint, not just by the judges, and we've kind of gotten into that a bit in a way with the precedent discussion, but with Congress and, and with the president and states and so on. Yes, restraint, although not just self-restraint. So actually, one of the things that I found really fascinating with this project is it ends up connecting sort of Madison's theory of representative democracy, which was that all the government officials are ultimately competing for the affection from and power of the people in different ways, different elections, different mechanisms, but everybody wants to claim they are the true representatives of the people. And that's what departmentalism is. That's each branch saying, you know, no, no, my interpretation of the Constitution Act by the people is the true one. Yours is wrong. Using the people as the sort of way to criticize the others. And liquidation was a way of capturing that, actually. The kind of repeated course of decisions engaged in by multiple institutions at multiple times that over time had gained a sort of broad acceptance, that was a sign that the people were on the side of this particular liquidated practice. 
So in a way, liquidation is an indirect way of reflecting that we the people have come around to a, a particular practice or precedent and aren't particularly eager to have Andrew Jackson or anybody else upsetting it. Thank you, first of all, for mentioning you know who. I want to put on my voice of the people hat for just a moment. Our listeners can't hear, but it's a, a New York Mets trucker hat that's going on above my headset right now. You mentioned that liquidation belongs to the people to the extent that the people speak through their representatives. But I'd like to know about how the people might be able to register a persistent feeling that a law is not constitutional, even if their representatives do not express that. Like, let's say it's a law passes the House of Representatives overwhelmingly, but 45% of the country in public opinion polls argue on constitutional grounds that the law should be null and void. So what extent does liquidation belong to them, if at all? So this is tricky. I think it's not just about the people by themselves. It's about, can they find some representative institution that's willing to hear their cause? And if so, the practice might not be liquidated. But importantly, and, and I think maybe the example, the response to your example is maybe the states. You know, So the Alien and Sedition Act passes Congress overwhelmingly, but a bunch of people are really opposed to it. The president is out there enforcing it. The judiciary is on board. And what does James Madison do to help keep this from being a liquidated practice? He runs the Virginia legislature and helps them write about why this is a constitutional travesty. Thomas Jefferson runs to Kentucky. And, you know, the states push back against this to show that there's not really popular will supporting this. And indeed, that leads to an election that undoes the law, undoes the constitutional precedent, and if anything, settles the opposite. So we've got multiple moving pieces. You've got the House, the Senate, the President, the Judiciary, and the states. Now, if a group of people find that their views are not encapsulated by any of those institutions, I think for Madison, they'd be sort of on the outs. Madison is the central figure in your article, not just because he wrote Federalist 37, but because he really is at the forefront of the, the main sort of founding era case study for all of this, right? In Congress, he's a fierce critic of the Bank of the United States. By the time he's president, he vetoes the bank bill, but not on constitutional grounds. And he sort of treats the constitutional issue as, as settled. We can't explore that here. We just don't have time. But I really encourage people, I mean, I already encourage them to read the article, but especially read that. But then, as you point out, he writes on this elsewhere, sort of fleshing out his thoughts in other writings. Looking at modern times, you know, it's funny, when I would teach Federalist 37 in, in classes for the Hertog Foundation and others, I would often teach Noel Canning as sort of the modern, a modern echo of some of these themes. And, and you've seen it that way as well, is right? The, the I, Noel Canning case about recess appointments. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's the, there was no prior Supreme Court precedent, so the court was forced to look at this kind of practice and try to figure out what to make of it. The Supreme Court, Justice Breyer actually used the phrase liquidate, I think for the first time that the body of a Supreme Court opinion had talked about liquidation of the Constitution. And that's when I first started thinking, somebody needs to write an article about this liquidation thing. I was hoping somebody else would do it, but eventually it had to be me. Well, I'm glad you did it. Just one last question as we go. You've written so many interesting things over the years. Just on the work of the court itself, the court's shadow docket, so to speak, and other issues, not to put you on the spot, but let me put you on the spot. What's the most interesting theme or dynamic happening in the court these days as you sort of watch what's happening? Maybe it's something we've already discussed, or maybe it's something totally different. The most interesting dynamic is that we don't have a swing justice, that depending on the issue and depending on what's happening, there are different justices who might join different majorities. Sometimes Justice Gorsuch joins with the so-called liberal justices. Sometimes it's Roberts. In fact, I think all of the justices have done it at one point or another. And that is just one of the healthiest things for the court I can imagine. 
because it makes the court not just about the ego and whims of one person, but about principles and methodologies and approaches to the law. Well, I hope it works out that well. I can't remember who referred to the court in the New Deal era as, as nine scorpions in a bottle. That doesn't sound so great. So sometimes having familiar teams is, is at least it's stable, so to speak. But on that point, I noticed in, in your, your article on precedent discretion, your first subject heading refers to the new Roberts Court. <laughs> I gather you, you mean the Roberts Court now that Justice Kennedy is gone and, and Roberts really is sort of the key justice. It's at least now that Justice Kennedy is gone. I think it's too yeah. soon to say who's the key. But the reasons no you just longer. described, I guess. Exactly. Well, Will, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. We're grateful that you took the time to do this. I really encourage all of our listeners to become your readers and read these two articles. Can you tell us what you're working on next or is that a secret? No, right now I have a new paper on the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, which comes up in some of the cases I've written about here and which I, turns out to be maybe the most misunderstood amendment to the Constitution, despite the very tough competition. Well, that'll be the next podcast then. Thanks again for joining us and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again next time for another episode of Unprecedential. <laughs>